2: This is the game football podcast from The Times. It's the morning after the night before, as young English hearts are broken, and Italy win their first European Championship since 1968. We'll also look at our favorite moments from the game, Euro 2020. I'm Hugh Woosencroft, and joining me today, Alison Rudd, Gregor Robertson, and Tom Clark. How are you all? Upset. Gutted. Absolutely gutted, Hugh. I'm sure you are as well. It's a weird feeling. It's a weird feeling. Like, I, I I went to the final and I was just like, whatever happens, I'm so proud that we got to a final. I'm at Wembley Stadium. You know I'm from Wembley. Watching England, you know, in a major tournament final. This is an experience that I'm just going to hold on to. It doesn't matter what the result is because I might never see this again. And I still really feel that way. And I'm, I didn't feel... Desperately hurt about the penalties. I know loads of people did. You you had a, of course, we'll talk about it, a moment where you felt like it was gonna be destiny almost. But um I, I when that first goal went in from Luke Shaw, it was worth every penny, basically. It was a priceless, it was a priceless moment. I mean, you literally felt on top of the world, and we were all looking at each other just like, oh my god, this is really is this really happening? And um a few people that I spoke to that went to the game as well felt exactly the same. You know, when the ball hit the back of the net two minutes in, the atmosphere, the reaction, you know, that sense of togetherness, it was it was incredible, really. So it was worth every penny just for that moment. And I think I would have felt more bitterly dejected had I felt England deserved to win and lost on penalties. But um, we'll, we'll talk about it in a while. I think it was credit to Italy that, to, that they won the tournament and I think that they were deserved winners in the end. So, you know, you leave the stadium and you think, that was a huge missed opportunity you know we might never get that chance again that that was really my feeling but in in football terms um, you know I, I I applauded the Italians when they came round because I think they were fitting winners and I applauded the England team because I felt like they gave us a brilliant summer and were you know deserving finalists um, and this morning, Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it still hasn't really sunk in. It still feels really weird that I even went to watch England in the major final. So the sadness hasn't hit me yet. You know, the, the, the gutted feeling hasn't hit me yet because I still felt for me yesterday was about the experience of going to the game and, um, yeah, I got to do it. So yeah, I feel, I feel pretty good about that. So yeah. Um, but look, it was an excellent summer of football. Generally it ended in glory for Italy. Penalty heartbreak for England. We all know the story. One all in normal time. Three, two to Italy on penalties at Wembley. But I wanted to know from you guys what your overriding emotions are. Same as me, what I've just reflected on really. Alison, I'll start with you.
3: i am in a bit of a mess because rather peculiarly, I dreamt in great detail last night that the England under-21 team had earlier in the day won a penalty shootout and won a tournament. It was a very very realistic dream. When I woke up, I thought that England had won last night because it was such a detailed dream, and then I had that. I had to readjust and realize that that was a dream, and actually, England had lost the penalty shootout. So, uh, that, when I have those realistic dreams that impinge on your reality, it does actually uh ruin my morning so yeah so uh, so i actually can speak for everyone and say I, I know what it feels like when england do win a penalty shootout it's just not actually real so that's, that's that's the shame of it um i feel um i feel more should be made of the fact i'm interested Hugh, that you said how beautiful the moment was when luke shaw scored because didn't did not anyone think the whole thing was such a parallel with the world cup in russia that England start well, and then slowly, what you see is we lack technical technical ability in midfield, and that's the thing we're supposed to be able to sort out. I'm not saying Gareth Southgate should pluck out of a hat like a rabbit uh, an amazingly gifted midfielder, a Perlo type, as we keep saying, we don't have one. So his tactics have to be to get around the fact. So you play counter attacking football, you use your pace, but instead uh England tired. And that comes down to I think an inability to know how to plan for the fact that you must know that Italy are going to slowly look more classy as they get on and start running rings around you and outthinking you and using the ball better. And if they use the ball better, that makes you tired. So um it's not just about substitutes with relation to who takes penalties. It's about substitutes fresh legs, planning it out properly. Uh, And in that sense, I don't think we've progressed very much at all from the Russia World Cup, I'm
2: sad to say. Tom, what about you, overriding emotions? It is gutted, really, Hugh, I think,
0: to be honest. And I think in the office last night with um, all the other guys on the Times Sports Desk, we were watching the game and had similar feelings to Alison, really. You know, you're watching it in quite an analytical way and obviously also you're planning how you're going to project the story. And in extra time, a few of us myself, James Restall and others were saying, you know, it'd almost be not better, but you kind of wanted Italy to score in extra time because they were the better team overall. I think if we're being dispassionate, they were the better team. And so you were kind of going, not penalties, just not penalties, not for this team, not for this young team who we admire so much. Um, So yeah, gutted. And when the penalties came around, a few of us said just not the young lads, please not the young lads. And of course, that is how it panned out. So, Alison's right to pick up on several of those points there. But if you ask me how I'm feeling, it is just gutted for some of those young players that it ended like that, Um, whilst also dispassionately probably assessing it and agreeing with Alison that Italy were the better team and that it was quite similar to that Croatia semi-final. England starting well, but fading away.
2: Gregor, keep up the England versus Scotland theme and tell us you're delighted.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No um i'm definitely not delighted I, I was to be brutally honest i was a little bit conflicted watching the game because i've said all along i've i've really enjoyed watching this england team i've felt a bit of an affinity to the more than i ever have in the past uh but italy are the best team in the tournament i think we saw that as the game wore on and i'm also really pleased for to see that to see the best team win that doesn't always happen i think i think that's we we could all agree that Italy were the most entertaining team to watch, um and the kind of most complete team, really. So I don't know, it, it, England. It's, it would be easy now. To, there's going to be a kind of post mortem in the way that England do very well, and kind of almost a seeking of scapegoats. I think it would just be great if you could kind of, you know, we, we everything else. And said there, I kind of agree with, but at the same time, Gareth Southgate's caution. And his sort of flexibility got you to the, your first final in 55 years and you came within a penalty kick or two of lifting the trophy. So, well, I kind of agree with that. I think, you know, could he have been a little bit bolder? Could he have been a little bit braver? Do England actually have, you know, yeah, maybe midfield is one area, but do England not really have the players that could have taken on Italy a little bit more? I think they probably do. But again, I've got to come back to that. Gareth Southgate, the way he did it, took you to their first final in 55 years. And I think you should be very, very proud of that. Um, There are things off the pitch that you shouldn't be proud of yesterday. I can't believe that a day of national sort of euphoria was turned into one of, not disgrace, but ignominy. Uh, And I'm sure we'll come to that. But on the pitch, I don't think you should be looking for anyone to blame or looking for anything other than feeling pride in what England have done this summer.
2: Before we get to to the game itself, um, how did you all watch and experience the final? Because I, like I say, I'm never going to forget it, but I was inside Wembley Stadium. Did you do anything special, Alison? Mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, listen, be, hold, on a, hold on a minute, hold on a minute, hold on a minute. Hold special. on, hold on, hold on, hold on. A person who decorated their house in dozens of flags during the last month is telling me that I'm asking a ridiculous question by asking if they did anything special for a final with England in. I mean, it's not that that difficult a question.
3: No, I watched it. I watched it mainly with a work hat on, actually. I don't... I can't... Um, I'm either working or I'm not working. Hugh, she said, digging a bit. I'm working or I'm not working. And I was... I didn't want to be in a place where it was so loud I couldn't you know hear my my own thoughts or whatever I wanted to watch it in a analytical footbally way as opposed to a nutty beer throwing way (laughs) so no no, not not special
0: no I was in the office, Hugh, working very, very hard, of course, Um, but it's always a unique experience watching, particularly an England game, particularly a knockout game. I've had some great, great memories watching it with colleagues in the office. The Columbia penalty shootout was one of my favourites. And as I said, it's unique because you have these moments of where you hear people shout switch it, switch it wide, switch it wide, and then you have someone else shouting, have we finished that Djokovic headline? Hurry up, come on, (laughs) we need to finish that. So, it's a very strange experience, but I mean, the penalty shootout, it was just really tough to watch. Everyone kind of crowded around one screen because that was the screen with the fastest uh, flow of the coverage. And we realized that that person was ahead of everyone else. So everyone's crowded around one small screen rather than watching on the big tellies, which are about two seconds behind. Um, So, yeah, that was a unique experience. I may have shouted... Jordan effing Pickford, you effing legend, when he saved that Jorginho penalty. <laughs> which, but I mean, I know I've been a big Pickford fan, but what Pickford a penalty clubs, save. Yeah. What a penalty save for him to do that. And I was just, I was willing to score the next one. Um, so, yeah, it's always a unique experience watching in the office with colleagues. Because uh, then, then you, you can't really digest and process what's happened afterwards because Saka misses that penalty and it's like, right. Publish headlines, pictures. Let's go. We've got about ten minutes to do all this stuff now. Um, so, as I say, that's probably where my gutted
2: feeling comes from. Waking up this morning. What about you, Gregor? Nipper on your lap, giving it, soaking up the Wembley experience.
1: <laughs> I think I think you know the answer to that. When I've got a seven-week-old <laughs> child, uh, the only there's one game I left the house for in this entire tournament. Uh, which was Scotland versus England. The listeners may or may not have discerned that in my voice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave that up to you to decide. <laughs> but it has been a tournament um, like no other for me in that sense. But look, at, at the same time, um, I'm not sure I would really want it to be out in the kind of I agree with Alison in the kind of beer flying everywhere, particularly because I, you know... I'd, <laughs> I was a neutral, essentially, I wanted, you, I wanted you guys, I would have been delighted for England to win, but um, I'm not sure I could have stood being in the box park or something. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Where I was yesterday, yeah, surrounded by former England internationals, um, Colleen Rooney and the like. Not that she played for England. I mean, she was in there as well, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> um, let's get to the game then. Let's get to the action itself. Um, I wanted to talk about Italy first because, firstly, they won, but also I think they did some pretty interesting things tactically that basically, you know, I, I think might have got them over the line in, in such a tight game. Of course, it went to penalties, but I think, you know, they, they were able to keep England at arm's length for big periods because of the tactical changes. Gregor, so I'll start with you on this one. Um, what do you think the key to Italy's win was? I
1: think kind of trust in their... And there's their, their game plan, really. I because England, I know we'll come to England. England were outstanding for the first half an hour and we'll talk about that more after. But it really took until about 55 minutes, an hour until Italy had really, really started to impose their kind of, and as, as Alison said, it does kind of come back to that midfield area where they're just kind of the number of passes and they're moving England around and England are just continually retreating. Um, It was as I said before. It was going to be a game of very fine margins, and they they got the equaliser with a set piece, and they won on on penalties. But I think Italy's dominance with the ball comes down to the fact that they had sixty five possession over the course of the game, sixty five percent possession over the course of the game. Um, And it was almost I I was watching, almost thinking this is a bit like watching England v Denmark in reverse. Denmark (laughs) were England. You know they had they had they had some periods of the game where they where they were in the ascendancy. But as the game wore on, the the, the better team grew into the game and were, became superior. And the pressure, the weight of pressure, you just felt it was going to result in a goal um, and possibly a winner. And England got a stroke of luck to to get their winner against Denmark. Italy, they came close, but England deserved it. England, England defended really well as well. So I just think that superiority, a kind of bravery on the ball, was the real difference, and we'll come to talk about Eng- England and why they didn't, why they don't play like that later. But I think really that was that was the difference between the teams.
0: Well, I just think it's interesting that Greg has mentioned the 55th minute to the 60th minute as the moment when Italy kind of really started to assert their dominance, because that was when Mancini made his first two changes, taking off Immobile for Berardi and Barella for Cristante, and that change up top I think was quite interesting because he went from having a kind of central striker in Immobile to pushing Insigne and um, Berardi, two wide players into kind of two, you know, almost a bit like Holly Gunnar Solskjaer does sometimes with two quick nippy skillful players playing up front, moved Chiesa out wide and it suddenly was causing England all sorts of problems because the defenders didn't have a figurehead in Immobile to kind of go and go, right, I've got him. I'm going to clean him out. Immobile didn't, did very, very little. Um, as a central striker for all the game. I think Stones and Maguire did a really good job on him until then. And I think that change was big as well. And as Gregor said, it, the bravery as well. Chiellini and Benucci at certain points were on the edge of the box. I couldn't believe it, the way they were kind of pushing forward. And there was a moment where I think it was just early on in the second half where Chiellini ended up almost on the edge of the box, offering to play a 1-2 with Jorginho and you just thought they are so in control here and they are just pushing pushing further harder and harder on England's next here and they're going to have to they might have to give at some point so I just thought it was really interesting that Gregor picked that out because that that felt like the
2: key change from Mancini to me Alison what do you think went wrong for England with you know this period of dominance in the second half that Italy had that I think just wore them out
3: well if you're getting tired you make subs there's a chance you can make six in the game. So you can be a bit more, uh, have a bit more lateral thinking. Basically, I think through the tournament, overall teams that have done well or surprised us are the ones that have embraced the subs. And you end up thinking, how many have they made? Have they made eight? Have they made nine? Because they've been that impactful. Whereas with England... It's been consistently, yes, I know they got to the final and you shouldn't be too critical of that fact, but it's been consistently a case of, does he not know how many subs he can make? Um, what, 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 you know, It's either the fans demanding someone exciting to come on the pitch or you're just looking at it and thinking they're, they're being slow to adapt to the opposition's energy or the team themselves are tiring and the, the changes seem to be slow so i'm not quite sure what the point of having so many fit young attacking players on the bench is if you're going to treat them like they're some sort of rare commodity they're part of it this was this is the new football this is pandemic football you have thousands of substitutions and you can you can you can change your team you can change everything about your team if you think it through and i'm not talking about being reactive purely to what's happening i'm talking about having a plan of action knowing that things aren't going to be static and you have to adapt and move and try and stay one step ahead if possible. Um, so I, I, I sort of didn't feel there was a good plan for how to, to keep the energy going. Because if you're a counter-attacking team, your basically philosophy is if we don't concede, we'll probably be okay. Um, that that requires a lot of energy and effort. And I just, I just felt England ran out of of steam and ran out of ideas. You can't criticise them for not having the technical ability because I don't think it was there for Southgate to pick in the first place.
0: Just picking up on a few of those points Alison's made, it's worth remembering in defence of Gareth Southgate that the no no real subs policy was one we were praising in the Denmark game. And that's in relation to what Gregor said about this being the inverse match. I think I, made, I was saying that Denmark made a lot of subs in that match and it seemed to unravel for them. And England only made one or two changes and that seemed to work as they continued to dominate. That was the other similarity in this game. I actually think England, they briefly got a foothold back in the game when they made a few changes. I think Henderson came on and they switched to a back four that seemed to slightly calm things down. But I actually felt overall that it slightly unraveled for England as they made more and more substitutions which is does lead back to Ellison's point that you have to have a better plan. It can't just be, let's throw on these talented lads. There has to be a clearer plan with what to do with them. Um, I, I mean, I would, to me, one of the most interesting subs was Declan Rice going off because I thought in the first half he was absolutely unbelievable. The guy looked like a world-class defensive midfielder. Um, and so when I saw him going off, obviously Jordan Henderson is an incredibly experienced player, but one that's not, fully fit and hadn't had loads of minutes at this tournament.
3: He didn't look fit, did he? He didn't look fit last night.
0: He didn't look fit. And it felt like he was being thrown on as the player that he is, an experienced player. And I made a joke in the office. I was like, oh, here comes Jordan shouting, come on, come on, come on, all of them. But kind of that really felt like all it was doing. And when you compare that to what Rice was giving England in the first half, breaking up the play, pinching the ball, making... Bombastic runs forward, barging people out of the way. That was a that was another turning point in terms of substitutions. On the flip side to the Mancini changes, which had a positive impact, it, I just felt Englands were a bit confused and it unravelled a little bit.
1: I, I remember though one point it may have been towards the end of the ninety minutes, it might have been an extra time, looking at the front three and thinking, you know, it was Kane, Sterling, Mount, and then even when Saka came on and thinking. Who's he going to take off here for Grealish? Because Grealish is not—he doesn't see him as a solid citizen like the, those guys. And ultimately, his fear of losing, of conceding a losing goal, was was greater than his, you know, his desire to find a winner. That has underpinned every single decision Gareth Southgate has made in this tournament. And I'd say it again, you can criticise him for that. It got you to the final and within penalty kicks. But if everyone's screaming for Jack Grealish, he doesn't see them in that in that light. If, if, you think, he doesn't think I'll throw him on to get a winner. He thinks if I throw him on, is he going to be the solid citizen I need so that we're solid, even pressing from the front or, you know, defensively? And I think that's, that really defines the tournament for England.
2: Listen, I think Roberto Mancini and Gareth Southgate was the difference in the, the result, to be perfectly honest. I know it finished one all after extra time, so I'm not going to have a Gareth Southgate too much. But we all know that there was that period of dominance in the second half, and it was almost like Gareth Southgate waited for the goal to go in. I mean, the pressure was there, a goal was coming, and then he makes the change of formation after he's conceded. And it was, you know, I've spoken to you guys throughout the tournament about the managers that have done best being the ones that that change the game, and they they proactively do that with their changes early. They don't wait for things to happen to them. And I think we've always seen Gareth Southgate being on the other side of that, you know, very, very reactive and usually too late. And that's what we saw, as Alison pointed out, in the World Cup in 2018. I think it cost us then. But I think it was brilliant from Mancini that he put Cristante on, as you mentioned, Tom, Berardi, Bernadeschi. I mean, they were... Choking Phillips and Rice for a period. You know, it was basically five on two in the middle of the park. Calvin Phillips shifted his life yesterday, did brilliantly well. Declan Rice ran himself into the ground, but the manager has to notice that. He should have noticed it in 2018 when it was Jordan Henderson being run into the ground by Modric and Brozovic and, and Rakitic. He learned nothing, it seemed, from that game in 2018. Um, but I, it was brilliant for Mancini to do it because the wing backs he was having no joy down the flank. So decided to play virtually exclusively down the middle of the pitch, overloaded the middle of the park, overloaded our central midfielders, and we couldn't touch the ball. But he just wanted Gareth Southgate to react to that. And we mentioned other managers before. We mentioned the Denmark manager, Casper Hulman, about having a plan B and a plan C. You know, the difference in the Denmark game when they made five changes is that the quality on their bench made, the, the five changes made their team worse. And I don't think England's bench is that poor that if we made five changes, that the level would have dropped significantly. I just think they needed a plan B and they didn't have the plan B. It basically went to a 4-1, 4-1. Jordan Henderson came on and was asked to press and he was running into their back four. And it was like, why have you not, if you wanted a player to do that, why didn't you bring on Bellingham? Why isn't Henderson sitting and doing the job that Declan Rice was doing really well? And it was a major part of the fact that we were still in the game. So I didn't, I really didn't get the changes. I actually thought Kane and Sterling were going to come off in extra time. When I saw Rashford and Sancho warming up, I thought... For ages, by the way, they were standing there for a, since the first half in extra time. So we thought they were going to come on at the end of the first half in extra time. And Gareth Southgate left them there until there was 90 seconds left. But Marcus Rashford on right back, Jaden Sancho on, both to take penalties. And well, we know how it worked out. But I mean, it, was, that your, was that your plan C, was it? You know, it was just like, yeah. this could not yeah. have been penalties the worst. The,
1: that, pen, no, penalties were the plan B. But let's be honest about it. I think there was, you could see from throughout extra time uh, that there was an acceptance. And that's the one thing you would say It's a kind of, whereas England really grew into the game against Denmark and took it to Denmark, and they looked like they were going for the winner. There was no very, very little sign of that in this game. Uh, There was, as Tom said, there was the odd little flash kind of, but no, I think... But as, as, again, I, can't, I really can't bring myself to, to criticise Gareth Seyke too much because the, the margins still were very fine. We could have been here today celebrating the greatest moment in England's modern history, but you missed a couple of penalty kicks.
0: Yeah, and I mean the other thing as well from the Team, team Gareth uh, band, bandwagon that I've been in, on for a long time and I will remain <laughs> on until he decides to leave as England head coach, is that you're right, Hugh, the in-game reactions, and Alison's right, the plan B and plan C, but you have to remember as well that we've praised him so much for having lots of different plan A's. It's like, it's kind of like he's got all these different files and plans that have kickoff and, you know, they're all plan A and they're all different, but he's not able to meld them and merge them into one game plan where you can switch between the two. That's what I found so strange. Like when the changes happened, I thought, okay, we're switching to four at the back now. and um, We'll see the kind of, um, performances that we've put in when we've played about four but it, it seems to unravel during the game that's that's if we're, we're trying to be hypercritical here and don't want listeners to think that our classic journalists slagging off an England team that have nearly brought us glory but we, but to be if we've got to be analytical that's what they need to then improve on it's that in-game ability to switch between systems because they've been brilliant at it we've praised them for it the most one of the most unique teams in tournament my my memories of football Having so many different systems, so many different ways of playing from kickoff, but then not being able to change it during a game. And I mean, if that's obvious, that's maybe more difficult, is it, Gregor, than doing before a game when you can in training for a few days. This is how we're going to play. But I would have thought you'd be able to adapt during a game when you've been
1: so adaptable throughout the tournament. Yeah, I mean, when you're counting what the other countering what the other team are trying to do you know that that's a different um different dynamic undoubtedly but i think you you got to you got to say england were were superb in first half Like it's the best i've ever seen them play this system they were you know they were fluid they were there was always either five men joining attack or five men behind the five five men behind the ball they looked solid at both both ways and got poor bodies forward as you say rice was pouring forward Kane was dropping in deep, show, causing all sorts of trouble. Ryan Sterling's playing more on the shoulder of the last man. Um, Mount was drifting in little pockets of space. The two wing-backs linked up to get the goal. Kyle Walker was bombing forward. So there was no... It, although they played that system, you watch them thinking, this is smart and this is the best way they've ever played this. And I just think you've got to also give Italy credit for the fact that they're a very good team and they, they've, they found solutions, they grew into the game, they exerted their, their control and their 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 dominance in the ball, of the ball and that ultimately wore England down but still it was a couple of penalty kicks
0: It's almost like management where you have to you plan and Johnny Northcroft said this on Twitter, England and Southgate are very good at stopping other teams doing what they want to do from the start but you then have to, it's almost like Gareth Southgate then needs to go and think right well how will they counter our system and how can I then reflect on that because if we thought about it, um, you know, it's very different game than different circumstances, but we were discussing it with Denmark and Wales, weren't we, and how they changed system. And I think, Hugh, you said it, how you, it almost looked like Denmark had deliberately planned that way, almost like, well, right, we'll show them this side of us for 10 minutes and then we'll flip on them and they won't be able to handle it. And Wales couldn't. They couldn't handle it once Denmark changed uh, to a back four during the game. And so that's an incredibly difficult thing for a manager to kind of envisage, right, well, how might Italy... Counter our first punch, and how can you then react to that? So, I, you know that that's 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 maybe what Southgate's got
2: to work on. For, for me, I'm I'm never against in knockout football spoiling the game. I'm, I'm never against that. I'm not. I'm never. I'm never against. They've put four players in the middle of the pitch. Go and put four players in the middle of the pitch. Tell your players to go through, tackle, run, compete for everything. Just don't let them get on top of you. I'm not against that either. So you don't necessarily have to have an amazing plan up your sleeve, but you have to look on the pitch. I was screaming at the guy next to me. Why hasn't he changed the system? Declan Rice and Calvick. There were times I felt so sorry for Calvin Phillips. The ball's getting passed straight, by the way, from Jorginho into the forward's feet. Like that, That is never a good sign. Your entire mid- central midfield area is just being bypassed. You just haven't got enough bodies in there. No one's screening the defend- the defense like you just you just needed to do something and he just sat there and he just it took a goal to make him do something and that for me is, is never good management i don't want to i don't want to be harsh on him It finished one all after extra time
0: but i think we're right to make the points we make in but you know with the heavy caveat that he deserves a lot of praise through the tournament but i mean has anyone got any good suggestions for what he should have done cuz you know try and be constructive
2: well they've played 4-2-3-1 they've played 4-2-3-1 they've played it well but for me when that happened, you want I wanted Mason Mount to sit on Jorginho when he was still when he was still on, because Jorginho was the one that was really dictating it. He was telling all of his teammates where to go. No one got close to him really. And I wanted Rice and um, Rice and Phillips to go back to how they played in the last two games as two sitters and try and stop the balls going through to the forwards. Um, And I think he still could have made changes from there, still would have had his two wide players, still could have gone to a 4-3-3 in in attack. And the thing is, when he changed it, we came back into the game a little bit more. But when he changed it, he had a different type of defence. He had one holding midfielder and he pushed Jordan Henderson a little bit further forward than Declan Rice had played and he started pressing. Um, And like I say, he he got a draw and he got it to penalty, so I'm not going to be harsh on him. but, But I'm saying... It, it almost allowed Italy to become really comfortable in the game and I think that helped them massively, that's all I'm saying. Alisson, have I been unfair at all? Gregor, go on.
1: I, just, I think it can, we can get a little bit bogged down. We have done. We certainly have. I think we <laughs> can get bogged down in the system. I think in the first half when they were playing it well, Kane and Mount were getting around Jorginho. Yes, he wasn't playing Mount wasn't playing directly in the hole, you know, in the vicinity, but he was still, Jorginho didn't have much effect in the game in the first half. So when they played it well, I just think Italy deserves some credit, but also it's more, it, it was more of an attitude. They They retreated. And Italy's attitude always throughout the tournament, apart from against Spain, when Spain, they recognised that Spain were more dominant and they were better on the ball technically than them. That's when you saw the real resolve, and uh, you know. So there's two things. England don't have that first kind of what's the word? The disbelief. They, they don't have. They don't have the belief that they can dominate the game for ninety minutes, and they don't quite have. Although they you know the whether they concede two goals in the tournament, they don't quite have the same kind of gnarly nouse that the Italians have when they need to to sit in and soak up. All the pressure in the world and see out a game so personally i think it's kind of its mindset as much as anything england have come on leaps and leaps and leaps and bounds in terms of, you keep talking about technical players england have got some of the best technical players in the world they still have a little weak point in midfield declan rice and phillips were outstanding i'm not taking anything away from them their performances throughout the tournament but when you look at the very best teams they're lacking something but I think it's more than anything, it's an attitude and a mindset sort of thing that England probably have to work on.
3: I, I, I agree with that, Gregor. I felt that England had the upper hand initially because they, I think they felt good that Spinozola was out and they exploited that fact and they had that sort of arrogance that goes with you know, a wolf looking at a wounded animal and, and they got that early goal and I think it rocked Italy and I think probably Italy felt that they were a good man down in that sense. But then, then psychologically, Italy making the better changes and starting to have an impact on the flanks and sort of flooding and being more interesting and offering different dynamics. It, you're absolutely right. England then felt they'd lost their ace card, retreated, and that makes you tired. And if you're going to do that sort of football, you have to. You have to be quicker, quicker from a managerial point of view on how you're going to handle that. You either counter it by surprising Italy by doing something interesting from the bench. I think, I think also think, if we're talking about mindsets, what must it have done to the um, Italian coaching team and the players on the bench to have seen substitutes for England loitering not, not that nothing decisive was happening. Uh, you know, at one point I thought, oh my goodness, these, these subs aren't even going to get on for penalties. There's just so much hanging around. I kept thinking "Oh, if the, as the camera missed someone coming on because I've seen someone ready to come on for so long. That is not good men. That doesn't look good from, you know, it's excellent from the opposition point of view, makes you look like you're dillying and dallying and you don't want to do that in a final.
2: Alison, I want to talk about a few players before we move on. Uh, One on the England side, a couple of Italians as well. Harry Kane for England. No attempt in terms of a shot. He didn't create a chance either for only the second time in his 61 England games. The other was a 29-minute substitute appearance against Switzerland in 2018. Thank you, Opta, for that stat. Um, What do you make of his tournament as as a whole? Was he at the level, do you think, for a player of his quality?
3: He had moments where he was. He had moments where he looked like when he was at his best for Spurs, when he was prepared to be intellectual about it and drop deep when he could and provide that extra bit of class to get a ball forward that was meaningful. Um, I think his physicality is excellent. He wins lots of free kicks and he was doing that at the start of the game. He must be a nightmare to play against but it is a bit worrying that our talisman and captain completely disappeared from the game and i wonder if he just wasn't really throughout the tournament at his he wasn't at 100% physically just you know in terms of pure match fitness i'm not saying he was injured i just don't think he was pure at pure match fitness he has had this thing where he has always in his career pushed himself never wanted a manager to rest him or He's always rushed back from injury. That has to take its toll. And I think, you know, to, towards the latter stages of the game, he, he did, he looked tired. And that's, again, it's about how you manage your key players. Harry Kane will have told Southgate, don't you dare arrest me. And sometimes you have to say, well, maybe, you know, <laughs> we have to manage his minutes better. I don't think overall his minutes were managed well.
1: As I say, I, think, I thought in the first half he was brilliant. I thought he was causing Italy all sorts of problems. And I think every time that we've had this conversation, there's probably been a broader issue in the game that has affected Harry Kane quite profoundly. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the time, he wasn't getting the ball in the opening group games, and there was no nobody really close to him. Um And he was magnificent against Denmark. And I, as I say, I thought he was brilliant in the first half, caused Italy so much trouble. Because as I say, the, the thing that impressed me mo- most was the kind of the fluidity of it you know the players moving beyond he was he was deeper than Mason Mount for majority of the game in the first half um and Italy didn't really know how to how to deal with it and his link-up play was brilliant and then you know Italy grew into the game and his influence waned and I think I don't think you can just lay that at the feet of Harry Kane
0: I really don't think any England player had a below par tournament really I think that's the other reason when you reflect on this tournament from an England point of view and the fine margins and getting to a final a lot of these players performed way above the level that a lot of us would have expected. A lot of the players in this team, I think we've come into this tournament thinking Calvin Phillips was a good midfielder. He now looks like, you know, a top, top the level Yorkshire midfielder. The Yorkshire Pirlo. Serious. No, but <laughs> I mean, the Yorkshire Pirlo is obviously kind of a Leeds fan thing, and they all and have been proudly uh, advocating his brilliance. But the guy looks absolutely unbelievable. Same for Declan Rice. Uh, lots of this England team, outperformed the levels that we would have expected from them and I think Harry Kane had a good tournament I think as Greg had said any fault or that may lie with Harry Kane in this tournament is about the the greater whole of England as a team and what the opposition have done to them uh, perhaps tactically on the pitch I think it's too too restrictive to just say Harry Kane is a striker he didn't have shots he didn't score goals he is therefore not good um, I I think Harry Kane gets an 8 out of 10. I think lots of the other players get 9s and even 10s out of 10s. I think the whole squad were overall pretty brilliant really.
2: Uh, speaking of 10 out of 10s, I wanted to talk about the two Italian center backs, Giorgio Chiellini, Leonardo Bonucci, 36 and 34 years old respectively. I got to witness one of the great center back pairings last night, so that was another honor for me personally. Um Gregor as a defender watching that game last night. Panucci even scored a goal, man of the match performance. Um, but they were just, again, they were just wily. They just knew what they were doing. It was the experience, really, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, and the dark arts were needed. I mean, poor stacker That's a tough night even getting hauled to the floor before <laughs> yeah. the penalty kicks. We mentioned them. Um, yeah, and even that moment, he was on a yellow card then and Sterling skipped round him. He just, he, he did that thing that the best defenders do where they know how to do enough without... Quite making it a foul. You know, he kind of leaned on Sterling, probably a little bit of a tug of the shirt, wrapped his leg around him. And this, you know, that was probably England's best chance in the, in extra time. And he just did enough without, without conceded a penalty, without getting, you know, sent off. That is the mark of a, of a truly brilliant defender. And, um, look, I, I personally think that, you know, as much as I love them, like with all my heart, <laughs> slightly <laughs> too much has been made of, their, their kind of supremacy in this tournament. I think much as they've been excellent, there's been moments where Kiolini has looked, has looked 36. Um, you know, the goal against, uh, Belgium being one. And, you know, he, although he knows what to do in those moments, he, you know, in the moments where he looks like he's going to be exposed, uh, I think probably we're seeing, the end of this partnership and what a so partnership it's come on, come on,
3: come on Greg, Gregor, they were charismatic, they were incredible.
1: Uh, absolutely, the presence is another big thing, the, the fact that they are on the pitch just inspires the team.
0: One of the moments of the tournament is the Jordi Alba hug before the penalty shootout isn't it? Chiellini kind of just giving him a big hug and a grin before a semi-final penalty shootout in a European Championship. I bet super. Kane was kind of and approaching
1: then, him warily at the end there. Yeah,
0: thinking don't hug me, please <laughs> don't hug me, me, don't make me look like it. <laughs> Tips. but there's a great moment before the match as well just in kind of tom's tips for things to look up on uh, youtube or twitter where kialini and maguire met in the tunnel and kialini comes up to him with a massive grin on his face this is a guy you're about to face in the final and he goes big man and gives him a massive hug like just in a kind of yes this is great and then he walks off and he does this kind of like fist bump dance type thing as if to say, you're yeah, well up for this come on let's have it it is as Alison like their charisma is superb as well. That's been a massive part of it.
3: I love I love Kealanie's post match interview in his lovely English, like the most enthusiastic waiter you'll ever meet in your life in your best Italian <laughs> national. Everything <laughs> everything on the menu is amazing, and he was just so he was just his English was beautiful and his accent was beautiful. But what they did for I mean, Gregor's stressed their age, but what I my very favourite defenders are ones that are a bit older, but they what they lack in pace, they make up for in their brain. So you, you'd see a, a move and then suddenly out the corner of your eye, you'd see one of them just appearing at exactly the right moment because they'd read the danger and they'd run in the most time effective way to intercept. It was just absolutely beautiful reading of the game, which you have to have if you're, if you're, if you're over 34, you have to have it. And they... I just thought their timing, their reading of the game, their ah, uh, their, their chests out. There, I mean, I honestly felt. I said at one point, I think Chiellini would take out a saw and chop off his leg if he felt he, it would mean the team would win. And um, you can't, you can't put a price on that sort of passion, can you? I don't think you can.
1: Chiellini had one of those moments you're you're describing uh, against Sterling, I think, in the second half, where he, he they were exposed and he kind of turned. And just made a made a beeline for for Sterling. I think he's he tried to cross, he was sliding, and, and you know he gets up and punches there. Uh, and also in the goal, the guy who was kind of made sure the ball got through in the first place was Kalini. Kalini kind of I, can't, I think was maybe Stones. He was just doing enough to kind of bear hug so the ball got past them. And then Boric is the man to tap it in. They're a real threat in the opposition box as well. So yeah, look, they have been their presence has been enormous for Italy.
2: The penalties. Kane, Maguire, Rashford, Sancho, Saka. Saka, the fourth youngest player to appear in a Euros final, taking the fifth penalty for England. I'm not going to say that's smacked of not having a plan either, um, but it was an interesting decision, generally speaking, to well, see those five wrong. take penalties.
1: He'd no, I'm wrong. just saying, Look,
2: Rashford, Rashford and Sancho came off the bench for 90 seconds to, to take pens. That's a plan in itself, I'm just asking the question, whether you think it's the right plan or not.
1: That's the only question, yeah. but, but Italy, well, the thing we have to say, I wrote a piece in the Sunday Times that touched on this, is England have studied penalties, like in meticulous detail now for five years. A guy called Reese Long, who's the head of analysis and insight, drove this report and you know, England have won the last two penalty shoot- shootouts. Um, it's covered everything, you know, so you see them taking the, between three and five seconds, they, uh, they, they pause between the referee's whistle and beginning the run-up. Is to take ownership of the kick. Uh, they always the study found that the best penalty taker should go first. So people saying you should put one of your best kickers fourth and fifth because of the pressure things. They have their studies found that the best takers you go in order from best to best to worst. Um, and they even even little details about the psychology of it. Where if you miss. You should try and conceal your emotions as much as you can. I know that's not going to be easy, Neg- so the negativity doesn't spread through the camp. And you saw Chiellini, whenever Italy missed, and you saw him in the semi-final too. He eventually kind of corrected himself, and he was up, saying, applauding, saying, "Come on, we're still in this." So, like, they're they touching everything. So people blaming, trying to look for scape. It was astonishing. Like within minutes of the, the penalty show last night, you look on social media, and people are looking for scapegoats, saying, "Why didn't Raheem Sterling experienced or?" John Stones or whoever, why didn't they take one? Why have they left it to a 19 year old kid? It's because he's the fifth best penalty taker on the pitch and they practiced it every single day down to knowing who stands next to whom on the sidelines. Even the coach, so they know where the kit man stands, whether he stands next to the physio. They've practiced it the same way every single day in training. And so you you might be right in that he was a 19 year old kid and the pressure was too much, but A, he was, He was the fifth best penalty taker and B, he wanted to take it. So I don't think, I think again, England do this very well. You're looking for scapegoats where there shouldn't be any.
0: Yeah, Greg is right. That was the thing that was telling about Southgate's comments was that as well as being very Gareth Southgate-esque and taking it all on his shoulders, he, he said very honestly that this was based on training and that particularly Sancho and Rashford were two of the best takers of penalties in training based on the work that they'd done. So I don't think there can be any doubt or over analysis about who should have taken one. I know it's also interesting this morning, Jack Grealish has tweeted, um, I said I wanted to take one, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. Don't, you know, don't, don't, don't ever say that I didn't want a penalty. Um, the gaffer has made so many right decisions during this tournament and he did tonight. You know, that that's definitely making, the, making it very clear this was a plan. This was who was taking them. This was completely thought through. And also probably that any of the other players who, didn't manage to take a penalty would have taken penalty but it was based on the training and also just very quickly let's briefly say that if manchester united aren't giving harry maguire penalties from next season there's something <laughs> very wrong comment, with it? It. jesus <laughs> christ what a tournament he's had by the way and for he that the <laughs> yeah, step up bang it into the top corner second penalty don't worry about it and he gave a brilliant he we looked a bit like you know the wwe wrestlers where they do like a finisher move and then stare off into the distance or into the crowd as if to say, you doubted me, you tossers. And it was fantastic. <laughs> it, was, it was one of those moments that would be forgotten because of what happened, but fair play, Harry Maguire, what a penalty take.
3: At the end of the penalties, I was left thinking, because I knew all that Gregor had said. I knew that England had done so much work on the fine detail, the, how you breathe, how you react and so on. I thought, okay, you can, you can shove your five years of research Just get your biggest players to hoof it. That's how you take a penalty shooter.
2: I mean, my initial reaction was, I thought they practised every day. So, you know, you can look at it in many, many different ways. Yeah, I was obviously hurt and disappointed by it. And, you know, fans will have all those questions on how it could have gone differently because we've got so many good players.
0: I just briefly want to mention my best mate, Jordan Pickford, again. I mean, I know I've already mentioned it, but the guy saved two penalties in a penalty shootout for an England goalkeeper. And it was interesting. There's a clip going around on Twitter this morning in relation to what Gregor said about mindset just before the uh, Jorginho penalty. And I know lots lots has made about Pickford being, you know, mad as a bag of spiders at times in his performances (laughs) on the pitch. But I, I love him and I think we should cherish him because he's had a fantastic tournament. And before he's about to face Jorginho, the most chilled out, showy, composed penalty taker, he's saying to himself, no problem. Come on, no problem. Come on, no problem. And he waits and saves that penalty. I know it, it means nothing. It means nothing, and it'll mean nothing to John Pickford. But that is a serious, serious penalty save. And uh, yeah, I, my love for John Pickford knows no bounds. The guy's a hero for me.
1: That's the fine lines we're talking about. He would have been a national hero, like if if England had gone on to win the win the tournament with. with, with. With penalty kicks, like it, the final, the margins were so so thin, and you know it's un, it's understandable, it's natural to try and pick out all these things now, but it's it was there was nothing in it.
2: I, I mean, the perception of Jordan Pickford, I think, definitely changed during this tournament. And that's great news for him and, and for England as well. And uh, funnily enough, I was saying in the in the stands that I was confident on penalties because of Jordan Pickford, despite what I've said about him in the past. Yes, you. Because I, yes. He, he he is a goalkeeper that likes to partake in a little bit of S-housery and it seems always seems to work for him. So I do enjoy that. And I said, he'll it, wait as long as possible to put them off. And he came walking out of his six-yard box every single time the players put the ball on the spot and had to be forced back onto the, the goal line by the referee and he made them take as long as possible. But also, I actually think he's very athletic and in a penalty shootout, a goalkeeper like that, it really works and the only other goalkeeper that's better is a giant and that was Donnarumma on the evening. So um, again, I, I just can't be harsh about England. I can though maybe be harsh on the fans who barged their way into Wembley Stadium causing a stampede at times. There were some awful scenes in London generally yesterday. I went into Leicester Square and that was just absolute chaos so I decided to go straight up to Wembley way which wasn't much better at the time Um, and then I went inside the stadium and I was just shocked generally speaking about what I experienced I've been to Wembley so many times as a fan to watch England never seen anything like it I had to wait an hour to get in because they'd stopped letting people in because they'd already let in too many people that didn't have tickets. And this is the experience of journalists that I've spoken to, friends in other parts of the stadium. Every single one of them was surrounded by dozens of people. There must've been hundreds, if not thousands in the stadium last night who managed to get in without a ticket. And it's one thing barging your way into the stadium. It's totally another thing that people were going up to the turnstiles and basically using screenshots on their phones and, and the same ticket hundreds of times probably and going into the stadium through normal channels. I mean, at firstly, I didn't get searched at all, you know, when I went into the stadium, which for security reasons already, you're a bit like, okay. And then, of course, it was meant to be a COVID test event, COVID secure test event, and I went and got a lateral flow test in the morning first thing to make sure I had the results back in time so I could go into the stadium, and I got the NHS app downloaded and all that stuff, and to be surrounded by people who didn't even have a ticket and clearly hadn't gone through that process You know at a time when we're getting so many new cases was again a massive worry you know this is a country that wants to co-host a world cup for an event of this size to be you know infiltrated if you like in that way i i thought it was absolutely ridiculous and that's aside from the scenes of violence and some of the casual racism experienced on on the day as well it didn't detract from the experience from me because i wanted to make sure that i remember that day for all the right reasons but it is a big, big negative and something the FA really have to investigate. Um, Alison, what did you make of it all?
3: Oh, you're very gracious, Hugh. I mean, I don't know how you can be so positive after that. I'm embarrassed yet again to be English and it's something uh, we we do not deserve to be able to host a tournament. It's absolute shambles. I hate, absolutely hate the booing of the other national anthems. I mean, what is that about? It's, It's a sport where you shake hands you say may the best team win and then you get into it beforehand you're supposed to have respect for what's going on and to not understand that the team you're facing have earned the right to be there and you're hosting it you're supposed to be when you host you're supposed to be gracious and beautiful and there was no beauty in the attitude at all and the i've heard about Italian fans you know, near pubs or trying to enjoy the game and being beaten up because their team had scored. Absolutely disgraceful. And it, 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 people say, oh, it's not really football fans. Well, it is, I'm afraid it is football fans and it's connected to football. And it doesn't do anyone any good or help at all to say, oh, it's just jobs. It's not to do with jobs. It's to do with our relationship with um, how we use football as part of our national identity. Uh, and it's its an absolute disgrace. in and, and if you may have picked up, I sort of get hypercritical about England and not very starry-eyed about them it's because in 92 I went as an official England fan I was you know I had the pack I'd got my tickets to follow England around Euro 92 and um, it was just one long constant need to pretend I wasn't English had to throw away my um, garb that identified me as English because people were horrible to me because I was English and when they didn't know I was English then I could get into conversations with them and have and I could speak to really drunk fans from anywhere else who while drunk were still polite and happy and joyous the English fans in Sweden were put into it was like they were put in a cage in a zoo so that other fans could go and watch them be disgusting and I was I was just embarrassed the worst hooliganism I've ever seen between Two uh, sets of fans in Europe that were not English was the Dutch and the Germans, and you know what they did? They threw marigolds at each other. That's how that's how nasty it got, and 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 then they apologized. We are we are revolting, and we do not deserve to host anything ever again. I am appalled by what you said, Hugh. I mean, it wasn't even there, and I'm shaking on your behalf. It is it is absolutely disgraceful, and I am yet again embarrassed to be associated with. The national team so there take that
2: I mean there were some Benny Hill type scenarios at the end of of security guards I mean aside from the the person that got onto the pitch I mean that was a similar case as I was exiting the stadium and for various security infringements they were chasing fans around I mean it was absolutely comical Um, I I felt the whole stadium was under policed I've been to um, major tournaments of course I was at the Euros elsewhere um, this summer as well and Wembley Way itself, there was nowhere near enough policing, Um, but the stadium itself, you know, people were just walking up to the turnstiles, you know, at Wembley Stadium for an event of that size, you know, you know, I don't want to be too serious about this, but I'm from London. We've seen, you know, attacks in London before, you know, to think that, that you're in a huge group of thousands of other people. And you're not being protected at an event that would obviously be targeted. If it were to be targeted, you know, it would be on the list, wouldn't it? I just thought it was absolutely ridiculous. And like I say, I really expect it to be looked into because...
3: Why aren't you more angry Hugh? I'm angry that you're not angry. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, like I say I, 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 I you know I was tweeting about it last night and I, I all, all, all the tweets that would usually come out about the game I don't think I've tweeted about the game so, you know So, I, I, but the thing is I didn't want to remember the day for that and I'm determined to not remember the day for that because like I say it was meant to be a special day um, I just thought, you know it was it was ridiculous it was ridiculous I mean I had kids sitting around me you know, bragging to one another about how they got into the stadium and having a bright old giggle about it. And you're just standing there listening to these stories thinking this is incredible. I could, I'm, not, I'm standing next to a kid, but I, I could conceivably be standing next to any kind of bad person right now, you know, two yards away from me. And I've, been, I've not been protected at all. And these people are saying they came through the turnstiles. They're not saying that they forced their way into the ground. They literally put a screenshot underneath the ticket scanner and it opened for them. You know and the same thing open for thousands the same screenshot open for hundreds of others probably um that system is clearly not fit for purpose you know and what happened is we got held up fans were singing you know let us in let us in let us in you're not fit you're not fit for the job and they were were banging on the walls like because they kept us outside for so long people with legitimate tickets and the reason they couldn't let any more people in at that time which was about an hour before kickoff was because they would clearly noticed that they, there were so many people in the stadium already with tens of thousands of more making their way in at that point in time. And I heard from a journalist inside that the Bluetooth, they hadn't basically used the Bluetooth setting with the turnstiles that links the ticket, the, the physical image, with the, the ticket that you have. So people were getting in and it was saying it's a ticket and opening the turnstile. But in fact, because the Bluetooth wasn't on, it, if it wasn't a ticket that Bluetooth connection would have said, this is not a ticket. And so people had just got into the stadium. That's horrendous, personally.
1: There's two aspects to this. There's one is the operational procedures of Wembley, which clearly have been a shambles. And the other is the people that people, people still like to say it's a minority, but I think you're kidding yourself because they're there in voice and might, generation after generation after generation. The people who sing the songs that we all know who trash usually it's cities in other countries but they trash the, centre of the city centre of their own capital uh, they stormed the national stadium uh, and then you know as some, some of the video footage showing started beating up the people who were storming in so it was like it's almost like we're going to defend their own stadium there's another subsection of fans you know who want to, who wanted to beat up the guys who were coming in it, it, it's just and then you know he started by, again, you say it's a minority, but you heard them, started the tournament by booing the players, taking the knee, and ended it by the three black kids who missed penalties being racially abused. It was a wretched day for England. Like, put all the football aside, it was a wretched day for England. And like, particularly sad after how much hope and sort of positivity this team has inspired. And some of the words, uh, you know, reading this, the papers over Saturday and Sunday, some beautiful pieces about what this team its kind of young, diverse, pretty fearless team, and a emotionally intelligent manager at the helm has done, or has kind of, you know, people were saying this represents the best of England. And as I say, just the positivity kind of unifying, or it should have been unifying. And within hours, the contrast between that and, you know, the kind of veneer slipping a little bit saying that, Sorry, no. This is England as well. That that is England as well, and it's something that is, you know, it might be might be hard to swallow. It might be dis- distasteful, but that is very much a, a part of England as the kind of positive message that we've been seeing from this young team throughout the tournament. And you know, I find that sad. I'm not I'm not English, but I lived, I've lived here for seventeen or eighteen years, and I love a lot about England, and I love. The vast majority of his people. (laughs) I was sad this morning, waking up, looking at all the, looking at the kind of how how a day of euphoria and national unity could be could could be turned into one of ignominy.
0: This team certainly didn't deserve this. Gregor's right. There's probably not for this podcast, and for someone more intellectual than me, there's a conversation to be had, surely, about the English football fan and its relationship with alcohol too, and how they, you know make that part of the match day experience because I'm you know I'm a not, season- not
2: just alcohol, Tom unfortunately well
0: yeah well as I say this is for another podcast then but I mean you know I I am a season ticket holder of a club and I I don't witness people storming grounds but I witness behavior on a regular basis that I just think that's that's abhorrent and it is often based on the fact that people have got up early and are absolutely written off by kickoff and that's for a three o'clock game and this game was 8 p.m. I was walking to the Times offices in London Bridge through central London and there were people and I was walking, looking at them thinking he, they're not even going to make kickoff. They're going to be completely written off by kickoff by six o'clock even. And uh, that's not to excuse it, but it's to say that it's a massive part of the problem in the, the the drinking culture in this country and the way that it goes hand in hand with the way a lot of f- football fans think that's part of the match day experience. I go to a Lincoln game and I have maybe have half a pint with my dad at the pub beforehand because any more than that, and it would distract me from watching the game. But you go, we've all been there. We've all been in the stands with fans who aren't even watching the game. But part of their day is that the game is the thing which the day revolves around, but the day is actually just getting hammered with their mates. And there's, sometimes there's nothing wrong with that. I've had great times with my mates getting drunk and watching the football, but that is a massive part of it. And yesterday it brought out the worst in a lot of people. And as Alison said, it was pretty abhorrent.
2: I mean, for me, yeah. The thing is, one of the reasons that I, I don't get angry and it, even the racist abuse, you know, Alison, it's so expected now. I mean, it's, how can you get annoyed about it? You know, it is it is what happens. It's just what happens now. We've seen it all season. Um, and and I, like I say, I've been to a load of England games. You know, I do expect to hear those songs casual racism that people think is thinks is funny you know the saddest thing for me is after about an hour of the game yesterday um, because I'd seen people around me with their kids and I don't know I heard the kids screaming It just it entered my consciousness I thought if I had kids I would not want them to be here which is a sad thing for a major final in the place that I was raised you know watching England but um, I was you know I was looking around and I was I was almost in awe of the people that were in there with their kids, you know the England fans are in there with their kids and trying, trying to be- behave. I mean, there were England fans, by the way, with kids around me who weren't trying to behave, and fault fell into the other category. But um, you know, the people that had gone with their kids to just enjoy it, I was almost in awe of them. You know, putting up with it, to be honest.
3: Yeah, but in Hugh, in some in in summary, Hugh, you really wanted to go and you were excited to get a ticket, and your experience was you were supposed to be at a COVID test event, you did not feel safe in any sense that you might be protected from COVID. You did not feel safe from a terrorist attack because people were going through with rucksacks that were not being checked. You were not safe in terms of the colour of your skin because you experienced and heard racist abuse. People were behaving um, rudely using language that you found abhorrent and children were being encouraged to behave abhorrently and England lost. I do I didn't I do did not see why you want to treasure that event one iota.
1: I think there's two two other things worth considering. One is I think well the, the impression I'm getting is it was quite an edgy atmosphere and whether that had any sort of influence on the team. And another is if this team this team has been seen as quite as i say they've kind of unburdened and from the past disappointments and you know despite the despite the, the booze for for a gesture that was they clearly said was an, an anti-racism gesture you know they stood they stood tall and kind of and won that argument i would suggest you know there was a loud applause for for the game and it, that changed even through the tournament but after seeing the their teammates racially abused on social media and seeing the state of their fans how is their relationship with England now again has it gone backwards a little bit is you know this is supposed to mean a positive summer for England I think I especially think that a part of the problem for England's players has been who they're representing I, I don't blame them for that I don't blame them for that
0: I think there's a group of football fans that are that don't necessarily care that much about the team as in the players on the pitch. They have a team and and at national level, that is England and that is what they represent. But it is just the vehicle for which they're... De- you know, I've been to Lincoln games before. I remember one, I won't name the team, but I got on the train back to London with a load of away fans having been to a Lincoln game. And Lincoln had won in the last minute of the game. And their team their fans had then kicked off with a load of our stewards. And I stood with my girlfriend at the time in quite a tense part of this train carriage with, surrounded by away fans who were all saying, what a great day they'd had because they'd let off a flare and punched a steward. And I was think, sitting there thinking, your team have just lost to a rival in the last minute of an important game. And they were like a class day. Oh, look, I've ripped my jacket. Oh, boy, do you see do you see uh, Jimmy land that bloke? Oh, uh, he punched him in the face. Uh, yeah. Like the football is just the vehicle for their day and that that what they want to happen to go around so i don't the the fans i don't think they care about this brilliant team and that's what's so sad this articulate manager this these well-spoken young players with great thoughts on social justice and you know children's education and things like that they don't care they don't really care it's not about that it's about england three lions st george's not bothered about who's on the pitch
2: I've said it so many times before though. I've I, I, I have always felt like in uh, football in general as a sport has allowed a climate of aggression for a long time inside the stadium. And it goes from the managers screaming at officials on the touchline, players in the face of the referee and of course that spreads into the crowd. I mean, there is no limit.
1: That's a European and worldwide uh, truth of football. But yeah, I other, other, every other nation, when they when they join together and they meet in the, and they come together for a tournament, they t- they tend to do it pretty merrily and calmly and happily, and you know, in a in a spirit of friendship. That's the difference. So there's something it's something deeper than just you know talking about the lads getting pissed up and and them not caring about the football team. It's about national identity. I think we should dock in the head there because football. You know, it was a bad day for England in that respect, but England got to a final. I think you got to hold on to that because, I mean, certainly if Scotland had done that, you'd be scraping me off the walls. (laughs)
2: <laughs> okay, well, let's look Ceiling. ahead to, Ceiling. that's the
1: phrase, isn't it? Ceiling. sorry.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, whichever, you know, you might spill down onto the walls, I don't know. Anyway, let's look ahead <laughs> to what England might do under Gareth Southgate, because I think he's going to get a new contract, he definitely deserves it. We've reached a final... And we got a winning culture back in English football during the last five or six weeks, whatever it was, because I I think we realised it was about getting through round after round. It wasn't about playing like Spain or Germany and all those things that I've said before, playing like Brazil. You know we found a way we got some confidence back and we reached a final which is huge because the level of expectation goes up i mean it might not be a good thing in the end the level of expectation going up but it's something for us to aim for england have set themselves a high bar so i want to ask you finally on england what you hope for with this group of players under gareth southgate in the coming years
0: more of the same i think Is a boring answer because let's be honest Both of the last two major tournaments have ended with what-ifs and forensic analysis, but they've also given England, you know, I've said it before, the amount of eulogising that goes on around Euro 96, this team have now given the fans two tournaments back-to-back that have been as good, if not better, in terms of performance and moments. That that win against Germany at Wembley, what a great game that was. A fantastic game of football, incredibly tense. And I actually we're going to come on to our favourite moments in a minute, but I was looking back and those two goals that England scored against Germany were superb, really good team goals, incredible moments. So more of the same, don't don't doubt yourselves to the, any of the players or to Gareth Southgate. And yes, there are things to maybe improve on. Yes, things to work on as we've picked over already, but more of the same, more special moments. I, I'm already looking forward to the World Cup.
3: Okay. We've mentioned on the podcast, Calvin Phillips being called the Yorkshire Perlope. Well, I, he's not, is he? And that's the point. He's wonderful, Carbon Phillips. I love his energy and his you know, just relentless getting involved. We need to, we need as a nation to start finding. There's a big hole in. Okay, who, who, where, where are where are our cultured midfielders? We've got we've got good fullbacks. Too many good fullbacks. We've got great centre halves. We've got loads of players who can play behind a number nine or part of a three behind a striker there's no one there's no one really who can dictate technically and in terms of cerebrally looking at the game and take over and be calm and pick out the passes relentlessly I mean through the 90 minutes I mean just or even as a, a midfield unit do that so we've had lots of talk about how england have progressed from the youth a you know lower age groups um the fa are keen that we develop properly that gareth southgate knows what's happening under 18 level as well as what's happening um when he goes to watch kieran trippier play in spain you know he's got his eye on it all but we're not we don't seem to have and in we're not breeding intelligent technically gifted footballers in the middle of the park yet and i don't think and if we'd, won, yeah, we could have won. We could have, we could have, we could have beaten Italy on penalties, perhaps. But I still think if we were honest and we'd done that, we'd have said we got lucky and we weren't the most gifted team over the the entire match. And I want, I want England to be able to. Now we've got four G pictures everywhere. Why haven't we got? Why haven't we got players that can play football? Please, thank you very much.
1: You need Billy like Gilmore. That's your problem. Um, <laughs> I, I, no, I I actually agree with Allison, but I would say I would caveat that with you know that's the one thing that England lack. But I would I would I watching this tournament I kind of come to believe that if you did have that kind of player and that player emerged, then Gareth Southgate and Steve Holland, they're pragmatists at heart, and I think they would find they would they would know how to. To change the way England played accordingly. So, and again, you've got to look at the, the winners of the last two major tournaments, France and Portugal, and they did it pretty kind of in pretty similar fashion to England. They were solid, and they had a bit of bit of stardust up front. And yes, England could England have got got a bit of a bit more of that on the pitch at times, perhaps. But I think really, I kind of agree with Tom too, and that it, you've got to. Don't, don't try and rip it up and start again or anything like that. It's got to be, you've got a smart guy in the dugout. a real you know, a, an excellent backroom staff around him too, which he's helped assemble. And there's been a lot of thought into making England a better better national team. And there's been a huge improvement. And I actually think probably the rate at which you're developing players now, it won't be long until you see a Billy Gilmore in the England strip. <laughs>
2: <laughs> uh, just uh, quickly wanted to mention that Gareth Southgate has been speaking while we've been talking. says, as a manager, you have to accept there will be intense analysis, so hopefully he enjoys his podcast. Uh, we've benefited <laughs> a lot from praise during the tournament. There will be a lot said after the game. I have to accept the analysis when things don't go right. You make hundreds of decisions day in, day out during the tournament. Some you get right and some that you don't. You have to get more right than wrong. So I take responsibility and take the criticism that comes with that. I have to take that. If I didn't get all the decisions right last night, so be it. I have to live with that. And I just, it's quite sad for me to see that because, you know, after Euro 96, et cetera, I wanted this to be, you know, he should leave with a positive feeling instead of people like me criticising him. So Gareth Southgate, keep doing your thing, even if it means two holding midfielders. Um, yeah, <laughs> sad as it ended, of course. Um, Well, it did. Look, look. He can do what he wants now. We. I am firmly team Gareth and Gregor. Though you laugh, I know you are too. Uh, Up next, we'll look back at the tournament as a whole. Some of the best and worst, of course. But if you've enjoyed the podcast so far, leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts wherever you get your podcast from, and make sure you're subscribed at thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. so we've just about got time to reflect on Euro 2020 as a tournament which I think we can all agree was a fantastic one from start to finish really great for the England fans but um, I guess the only negative I would have about it is the travel which hopefully they will sort out soon because some 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 teams just had to travel way too far. But apart from that, I think it went really, really well. Even though what I said about Wembley in the final, I still think it was a great tournament. Uh, the Michael Jackson inspired choreographers was maybe a little bit too much. But apart from that, it was it was brilliant. Um, so let's talk about who we thought was, we'll give out some of our awards and let's start with player of the tournament. Alison, who was yours?
3: I honestly thought everyone would go for him. Simon Kier, Kier care simon care um he the the, the denmark captain i mean unbelievable tournaments because um the way he responded when his teammate christian Eriksen collapsed absolutely impeccable and also putting his uh Christian's partner first, the team teammates first. Not doing all the right things. Uh, I think he even actually probably helped save his physically helped save his life. And then it turns out he's a blooming amazing defender as well, and the leader on the pitch. Uh, really, one of the players of the tournament, both on and off the pitch, and, and you know, without doubt, the player of the tournament. Because I think it's very easy now to forget just how or all, all, how upset we all were in those scenes in that Denmark game and. It was thanks to him that, it, you know, they, they had a sort of happy ending in the way and that, that Christian's fine. So I, I just don't see how you can not look at him. He's just, don't look beyond him. He is the player of the tournament, man of the year.
0: Jordan Pickford. No, I'm joking. Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, he comes He comes in a, He's easily in my top five is Jordan. Um, it's, it's a tough one. I'm going to have to go with Jorginho, I think. Um, got to pick a player from the team that won it. I think he was superb for Chelsea towards the end of the season and would just looked fairly imperious in midfield throughout the tournament. Looked absolutely superb in this way we analyse modern football now. I wonder whether he would have been that appreciated 10 years ago. I just think he was absolutely superb for Italy in controlling their games. He controlled the way they played. When you reflect on their performances throughout the tournament, apart from in patches here and there, they were the best and dominant team in nearly, in every single game that they played and they're worthy winners. And he was an absolutely phenomenal p- performer throughout.
1: Spinazzola, I know he missed the last two games with injury, but um, I can't, I, you know, I've racked my brains trying to think someone who had more of an impact on their on their team and probably on, this, on the tournament. And I would say that despite his very, very sad injury um, against Belgium, Spinazzola, a left back, right footed left back, who plays like a, I don't know what kind of winger. He's he was outstanding. He was at least biggest threat, Um and he was a huge blow to for to lose it to, to lose him. And you could see actually in the celebrations, and you know he was on someone's back. He was he was the first person up to to kind of get his medal. Uh, you could see that the players and and the staff and probably all of Italy appreciated how important he's been uh, for them. So I would say Spinazzola.
2: Uh, well, Italy's Gianluigi Donnarumma won it uh, thanks to his penalty saves in the final and uh, earlier on in the competition. But the only player that I think for me I was, I, I felt wow watching in this tournament was Pogba at times. I wouldn't give him player of the tournament because obviously they didn't go deep into the competition. They drew three games. But I think for a period there, I was like, this guy is way too good to play for Man United. So, um, he was just doing some special things, and I look, hope long may it continue. Um, hopefully, we get to see the Paul Pogba that we've been talking about in terms of potential for so long. Uh, what about the breakthrough star of Euro 2020? Who did I start with before, Alison? Was it you?
3: Oh, well, yes, oh dear, there's a bit of a theme developing here. Um, uh, it's it's Mikkel Damsgaard, isn't
0: it? I mean, no,
3: he, did, he, did, he did have king. you got any
0: affinity to Denmark, Alison? I can't
1: remember. <laughs>
3: No, this is genuine. Just is genuine stuff. No, but, um, apart from the fact he did, he's young, twenty-one, and he played really well and scored a particularly beautiful goal. And um, you know, has all the attributes of someone who I think will get better and better. He's, he's the definition of a breakthrough star because he wasn't supposed to play. You know, he was he was a sort of sub for Christian Eriksen. Really, he was a backup player. They weren't sure if he was mature enough. Um, you know, didn't want to push him on the on the world stage too quickly. And he had to come in in difficult circumstances. And he broke through. And everyone now thinks, ooh. I want to see more of him. So I, I, I think that, again, is unarguable, although you seem to be arguing with me on my choices, which is very
0: strange. Uh shout out for Alex Izik for Sweden, who I think, despite, I don't even think he scored, but I just thought he looked like such a fascinating player um, with serious potential and an amazing touch in tight areas. Um, but I, if Alison's got a theme of picking Danish players, then my theme is picking Italians. Uh, Federico Chiesa. I don't know whether there's an age limit on breakthrough players, but... And lots of fans in Italy will say, oh, we've known about this guy for a while, but I just thought he was superb through the tournament. And Gregor talks about them losing Spinazzola. Um, I think he came in and then became their talismanic best player on a different flank. Berardi had started the tournament on the right. Chiesa then came on, scored some brilliant goals and quite rightly pushed him, pushed his way to the front. Uh, of the queue. I just thought he was superb. Such a, such a different player, a bit of a throwback as well in the way that he played kind of bustling, constantly looking to shoot all the time in this age of analysis and make sure your shot percentage chance is good and expected goals. He's just looking to kind of beat his man and get a shot away. He was fantastic to watch, full of joy. He was, he was so joyful to watch.
2: He's improving rapidly, Chiesa, so expect big things from him because he had a lot of endeavour. One of those players that would pick it up and run with it and not really know what he was doing with the ball at his feet and maybe overrun it or a defender would just get a toe end in. And now he seems like supremely in control of the ball and knowing exactly what he wants to do. Maybe that's uh, having Ronaldo as a teammate helps you uh, practice those things. But um, yeah, I expect to see more from him. Gregor, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was... Uh it does seem odd going for somebody who's the player too doesn't it but it, it was like a pow i've not really seen him that much of him and he was well he, he, right. he did
2: start the tournament in the 11th uh, exactly yeah
1: exactly and he's very different but to, i'll go with someone else there i think i think uh mail as well for for uh for denmark fullback he's been he's been brilliant and again you know you see he plays for atalanta although he only signed there in january from genk um I wouldn't be surprised to see interest in him because he's he is a real force down the flank and that assist that was the that cross with the outside of his right foot. Um that was probably the, the assist of the tournament. We probably won't have that category in this, will we? But um <laughs> he he was he was outstanding as well. Um a little bit of a difficult game against England, but yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see interest in him.
2: Obviously, Pedri of Spain, sensational, 18 years yeah, old. So um, he won the young player of the tournament and well-deserved as well. And another player we're going to see a lot of in the coming years. Um, this is one that people have already argued with me several times on this podcast about. Best match at Euro 2020. Is there a definitive answer now, Tom? I'll start with you, seeing as Alison's reading the paper again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um well, it's like she I, doesn't know it's
2: I, coming. It's amazing. I, I thought really,
0: really hard about this one. This The, the other ones were instinctive kind of um, answers, but I really thought hard about this. It was it was a fantastic tournament, I thought, but I really wanted to pick games that didn't finish on penalties. Um, there were lots of brilliant games that finished on penalties. Uh, France-Switzerland obviously was a superb game, great drama, fantastic for the neutrals, but I decided not to pick that. So my honourable mention and shout out goes to Holland-Ukraine, which I thought was the kind of first fun, slightly bonkers game uh, in the group stages. And that was the kind of like, yes, it's that mad, mad moments of watching tournament football where you get three games in a day and you come home from work and you stick the football on and bloody hell, it's 2-2. Oh, they've won it. Denzel Dumfries becoming a household name for the first time. So that's my, that's my honorable mention, but I'm going to defer. going right, to mention all my... the
1: good games here.
0: Only, <laughs> only 2 I've only done two so far and then one more. That's all I promise. But I, I, I defer to my brother who watched as much of this tournament as me. Cause I just said, I can't pick. And he said, Italy, Belgium, great game. End to end great goals, fantastic drama. And 10 minutes at the end of Italy being absolutely vintage Italy. Had everything and it finished in ninety minutes. Perfect.
1: Hey, I mean, Tom said them all though. So <laughs> <I'll
0: go>. I, <laughs> I thought you surely I've left. I've left you the best one. Scotland nil, England nil. I surely yeah, that's
1: predictable, isn't it? I mean, that was my favourite. But um, <laughs> I think I think Belgium Italy. I agree. You know, there was great drama in the in the France Switzerland game, and the underdogs did well in this tournament. And that was the biggest shock. So that you know that deserves an honourable mention. But Belgium, Italy had it all and it was two top teams going right at it for most of the game. And as, until Tom, uh, you know, as Tom said, until Italy just, uh, pulled out all the, all the old tricks. And, you know, I think I read somewhere that they had like the ball was in play for like three of the final 12 minutes or something. It was mental. They were, they just broke it up and killed it. And that's still part of football and that's part of Italy. And that's, that's part of how they won the competitions.
3: Well, oh, you both bonkers. The obvious best game was uh, Russia won Denmark four. I know this to be true. I know it. I know this to be true because I was writing the match report, and if you're writing a report under tight pressure of a deadline where you're filing as the game goes on, it's actually quite hard to properly enjoy a match but I was whooping away and having an absolute right at a time while still being able to write about it so it must have been amazing it was also a game where all things were possible so it went from you know uh joy to tears to hope to what's happened what's happened in the other game and you, you it's one of those games where people are cheering goals in the other game and it was it was phenomenal it was phenomenal and it had a bunch of goals and it made me think um wow you know there's room for a fairy tale in this tournament as well so uh, and it was also good for football because Denmark had in their previous game played incredibly well against Belgium but got nothing out of it and you sort of wanted them to be rewarded for the ability to do that and, and they were so it was it was just a stunning exciting all things possible had everything everything it had beauty as well as drama what more can you want.
2: I personally liked Italy against Belgium as well, Gregor, but I, I really loved Spain-Italy semi-final too from a tactical, technical point of view. I just, you know, th- that was a game where the Italians basically got battered. <laughs> I mean, they won the <laughs> tournament in the end. Um, but but again, it was two different types of managers who were tactically incredible. On the, I mean, on the day, Spain were absolutely fantastic, but Italy doing the other side of the game so so well and yes they could have conceded more goals and yes they played really on the edge that's what made it exciting if Spain had a genuine centre forward I think they would have won the game comfortably but then again if Italy had a genuine centre forward they probably would have won the final 4-1 you know so you know swings some roundabouts but I felt I thought from a pure football perspective that semi-final is probably my favourite and um, finally your favourite goal I mean if anyone says Patrick Schick of the Czech Republic, look, it's obvious <laughs> he scored the goal he scored the goal of the tournament. It's obvious, but I want to know your favourite yeah. goal. Your favourite yeah. goal, Tom? It's full house. I mean, I said, I may have said, yeah, I definitely
0: did say after the very first game that Italy were going to win it. My love in with Roberto and his jackets started and I've been with them the whole way through. So it's a full house for Italy. Federico Chiesa's goal against Austria was just a, such a brilliantly simple but superb goal across to the back post takes a touch knocks it inside with the next touch bang hits it with the third looked incredibly simple i said it at the time, it's one of those goals that as a fan you think good goal yeah not bad mate and if you tried to do it you'd have absolutely no chance it'd bounce past you you'd boot it up in the air superb technical ability fantastic goal and in a game again where italy were just struggling a little bit um It
1: was a brilliant goal. Full house for the Italians. I mean, uh, you know my favourite goal, Old Callum McGregor. That's so the One time I got to celebrate <laughs> in <this tournament. laughs> the tournament. But no, I think my favourite goal was actually Pogba's against Switzerland. The way he made the yard of space. I think it was a little drag back and kind of then roll forward and sublime strike. He, he was, you know, I think if, if France had gone a little bit further in the tournament, he he would have been writing amongst the names for player of the tournament. He was, he was outstanding and that was a moment of, uh, of absolute brilliance. So I think that was probably... There's a lot though, Yarmolenkos. Sorry, I'm going to be Tom here. Just go through them all. Get them all out was, there, it was a great yeah. tournament,
0: lads. Come on, get them all out. Yarmolenkos
1: was an absolute cracker. Um, Callum McGregor's as I said, uh, but no, yeah, Pogba.
0: England scored some great goals as well. England scored a lot. If you go back and watch England's goals, they were great, the great team goals. <laughs> <laughs> great team, not against Ukraine. But the goals against Germany were great team goals. Even the goal against it um, against Italy last night was a great team goal from back to front through midfield, from one side to the other. They're the kind of goals that technically and these in these days of analysis you pour over for ages and ages. Scored some brilliant goals.
3: You should be very grateful that my favourite goal is Patrick Sheets' goal because he's not Danish, and that means I've I've diverted from my path. So, and I honestly what where where are we coming from we don't want to celebrate the obvious beautiful goal it was and it was extra beautiful because he would planned it He'd, he'd noted that there was um you know ah keeper comes quite off his line quite off his line i might try and take advantage of that so to do it from over 50 yards away absolutely incredible so that is i mean that goal is imprinted now on my brain and it's it's the goal if you said you can only watch one goal again I'd watch that one again so it's my favourite goal thank you
2: uh, I went for Karim Benzema's goal against Switzerland where the ball gets played into him basically behind his run he managed to flick the ball into the ground behind him and then just get onto it just before the keeper as he comes out and just dink it over him Karim Benzema, what a goal, but um, that was a great game. That was maybe my favourite game. I don't know, but yeah, Tom, you're right. It went to Penn, so it can't be up there. Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo got the golden boot. Just a quick mention for uh, the old-timer, uh, still doing it at the top level, Cristiano. So I uh, just thought I'd mention that and say uh, he's no longer the GOAT because Messi won the Copa America, but you know, that's for a podcast uh, on another day. Um, thank you so much for talking through all of that with me. It was um Quite difficult because of some of what happened yesterday and obviously losing the game. So hopefully we weren't too negative about it all because it was a hopeful summer for English football and a great one to reach a final for the first time since 1966. So one to savor. We've hoped uh, that you've enjoyed all of the game Euro 2020 podcast as well. We'll be back in a few weeks but Alison Rudd, Gregor Robertson, Tom Clark, thank you for being with me for the bumper now episode uh, of the game, final episode of Euro 2020. Uh, remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts wherever you get your podcast from and of course, make sure you're subscribed ahead of the new season to the Times and the Sunday Times for more of our great content. Just go online, search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. You can get it for less than a pound a day and begin your free trial right now. We will see you very soon.
3: Q. Dean Martin. When the moon hits your eye like a big pizza pie, that's amore.
0: When the world seems to shine like you've had too much wine
1: at some more day.